Well, there are many powerful and self-confident people who think they're in control and that they don't need God. King Nebuchadnezzar was one of those. He was a man who was rich and powerful. He was wicked and arrogant. It wasn't that he didn't know about God. As we've seen going through the book of Daniel, in the first three chapters, Nebuchadnezzar has had numerous encounters with who God is and the power that he possesses, and yet he still did not come to God. Some of you here may have a friend or a family member who's in a similar situation. You've talked to them about who God is. They've seen God at work in your own life, and yet they haven't yet come to know God. And I want to encourage you today, as we're going to see today, don't give up on them. As we think about those who would be at the top of the list of who were least likely to come to faith in God, Nebuchadnezzar was there. And yet, as we're going to see today, God was able to break him and bring him to faith. I invite you to look with me now as we read Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verses 1 through 3. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. What we're reading here is an actual letter that Nebuchadnezzar wrote that God had included in the scriptures for us. Nebuchadnezzar says, it has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now, in the opening words of this letter, this introduction is really the conclusion. Because what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here is summing up all the experiences that he's about to share. When he talks about God's great signs and wonders, this isn't tied to what we saw in chapter 3 per se. He's not recounting what we just covered in chapter 3. In fact, there's been 30 years that have passed between chapters 3 and 4. What he's doing here is giving us a flash forward to the events that are found in verses 4 through 37. In verse 4, we read, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Chronologically, this is the end of Nebuchadnezzar's 43-year reign. As I said, there's 30 years that have passed between chapters 3 and 4. Historians tell us that as Nebuchadnezzar was the king, he was constantly out doing battle and conquering and consolidating. And so what he's doing here is he's saying, I'm at the end of my run. I'm within the walls of the palace. I'm within the walls of this fortified city I built. He's surveying all that he's acquired, the land, the property, the people, the wealth. And and he's able to enjoy this. And as he's surveying his kingdom, he forgets what the source of all that he has is. You remember back in Daniel 2.37, there Nebuchadnezzar was told, You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. But Nebuchadnezzar forgets this. What he says here is, look at everything that I've accomplished. Look at all that I've built. As we go through this passage, we'll see he loves the personal pronouns of I, me, my, and mine. Somebody wants to find an egotist as a person who is a self-made man who worships his creator. A self-made man who worships his creator. And we see that fits Nebuchadnezzar very well here. As you think about your own life this morning, does that definition apply to anyone? As we think in terms of all that we have, uh, from our abilities to our position to our property to our portfolio, uh, your education, various things that you've accomplished, do you think in terms of what you've been able to do? Or do you look to heaven and thank God for giving you life, health, and abilities? 
Friends, everything we have from the breath in our body to the brains in our head to the uh, strength in our hands to do the things we do, it comes from God. And to remind Nebuchadnezzar of where his power comes from, God gives him another dream. We see in verses 5 through 7 where he says, I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners came in and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Now, this is the same song, second verse from chapter one. You recall Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He brings in the Babylonian brain trust and they're unable to tell the interpretation. Now, something that's different here is Nebuchadnezzar even reveals the dream itself and still they can't interpret it. Now, you would think that uh, Daniel would have been the first person that they brought in because Daniel had been the one who interpreted the dream in chapter one. But what we're going to see all throughout the book of Daniel It's not just with Nebuchadnezzar, but even in the kings that are to follow, uh, Daniel is the last resort. They don't bring him in uh, until all other options are exhausted. It reminds me of the story of a, a woman who lost her life savings in a business scheme to a swindler. And after she had had uh, all of her investment uh, disappear and her dream was shattered, she went to the Better Business Bureau to file a complaint. And the person there said, you know, I really wish you had known about us earlier because we have a, we have a thick file on this person. And if you had come to us, we could have told you not to invest with this person. And the woman replied, well, I knew about you all along. Uh, I didn't come to you because I was afraid you'd tell me not to do what I wanted to. I wonder how often some of us are like this woman or Nebuchadnezzar that we're reading about, where we avoid good and godly counsel because we're afraid they're going to tell us something we don't want to hear. They're going to tell us not to do something we want to do. You know, you can play this game where you seek solutions from other sources. You can ignore good and godly counsel. But when you do those things, what ultimately happens is you find yourself flat on your back or you're forced to look up where you have nowhere else to turn but to God. And this is what happens with Nebuchadnezzar. In verses 8 through 9, it says, But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, and I said, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the vision of my dream, which I have seen, along with its interpretation." I want you to notice here, Nebuchadnezzar is using both the Babylonian name of Daniel as well as his original Hebrew name. You recall in chapter 1, Daniel's name was changed to Belteshazzar, which has the meaning of may Baal protect his life. And Baal was the chief pagan god of the Canaanites. And so Nebuchadnezzar is saying Belteshazzar is going to be the God you follow. And he says to us here at this time, this is the name according to my God. Now, as we're reading this, I want you to remember we're seeing a flashback. So as Nebuchadnezzar is writing this letter, he's speaking of, he's retelling the story that's happened. Thus, he speaks of the past as if it's the present. We saw at the beginning, he's come to faith in the true God in heaven. But what he's doing now in recounting the story is flashing back to being an unbeliever. 
And as he tells the dream to Daniel, he's still following this pagan god of Baal. He's still lost, but he says to Daniel there, I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, as an unbeliever, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't understand everything about God. And yet we see that he understands enough to say, Daniel, there's something different about you. Daniel, I see something in you that I don't see in other people. And I wonder how many of you have had that same experience where people have said something to you about your faith or they've said you're different. I see Christ in you. There's, there's something that makes you different and, and, and I want what you have. And this is Nebuchadnezzar. He, he looks at Daniel and, and he says, you have this relationship with God. And when, when he really needed to know the truth, he knew Daniel could be the one to tell him. Now, sometimes it will surprise you who the people are that will come to you and make statements like that. I shared before how before I was a pastor, I was a policeman in Dallas. And as a cop, uh, I worked with a lot of officers who, who didn't know or reverence God, and they, they made fun of me. They mocked me and my faith at times. I was going through seminary while I was still a policeman, so some of my nicknames were Reverend Raj and Pastor with a Pistol and... Uh, there, there are other names I won't repeat for you uh, that they had for me, but some of the guys and girls who were the most uh, adamant in, in making fun of me and my faith were the ones that when a crisis came in their life, when their marriage was in trouble, when there was some crisis in their life or something else, they would come to me and say, hey, can you get the sergeant or the watch commander to assign us a shift together? And they would say, I want to ride with you for the next eight hours. We'd be paired up in a patrol car, and they'd dump the truck on all that was going in their life. And there were others who would say after work, hey, can we go out? Can we sit down and talk? Because I just don't know what else I can do. I have nowhere to turn. And when God got people flat on their back, they were ready to listen. They were ready to look up and see who God was. And here Nebuchadnezzar has a need and he turns to Daniel and he tells him his dream in verses 10 through 18. Now in a moment, the dream's going to be repeated. So rather than read this here, uh, we'll wait till the interpretation to see the dream. But if you look at verse 19, you see that Daniel's reaction to the dream is this. It says, And Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. Now, the way that the Aramaic reads here is, is very graphic. What it literally says is, he was, when it says he was appalled for a while, as his thoughts alarmed him, the text reads, he was stupefied, silent for one hour. Daniel hears this dream. And as God reveals the interpretation to him, Daniel just literally sits there shaking his head. No. No, God. No. And, and the king is looking on, and Daniel is silent for an hour, just shaking his head. And the king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. You see, the king is like, Daniel, I know you've seen me blow my stack many times. I kill people. I threaten people uh, when it's not good news. But he says, don't worry about all that. Just tell me, tell me what it is. And Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. You see, Daniel's not scared about what it means for him. He's, he's worried for the king. He served this king now for 30 years. 
And, and he's, he's hearing this dream and he knows what it means. And, and from what we see when we get to Daniel chapter 6, we're going to see Daniel's a man of prayer daily going before God in prayer. And so I have no doubt that every day Daniel's been on his knees saying, God, would you break the heart of the king? Would you bring him to know you? And Daniel has been holding out hope, and now he sees there is a judgment coming for the king. And, and as, as you think about those who maybe have hurt you, it would be so easy for us to look at this and, and, and read that when Daniel heard the dream and got its interpretation, he said, all right, get him, God. It's about time. Daniel could have said, I remember when I was carried away into captivity, me and my friends. I remember when Jerusalem was destroyed. I remember when the the nation was brought into captivity because of this king. And now, God, finally, finally, you're going to get this guy. But instead, Daniel's heart breaks. As you think about those who have hurt you, as you think about those who have stood against God, do you sometimes say, get them, God? Oh, if only God would just bring the fire from heaven, if God would just, you know, bring about justice at this moment. Or does our heart break for the things that break the heart of God? You know, as you think about those in the world that are deserving of judgment, Second Peter 3.9 tells us, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The only reason God has not unleashed his, his, his justice and judgment on the world is because he is delaying that so that more and more people could come to know his son and not go through that terrible time of the tribulation and the other things that are coming that we're going to see later in Daniel. As you think about those who have hurt you, are you like Daniel where you're praying for them to come to faith and repentance? Daniel is saddened here. By the coming judgment that's revealed. So he says in verses 20 through 26. The tree that you saw. Which became large and grew strong. Whose height reached to the sky. And was visible to all the earth. And whose foliage was beautiful. And its fruit abundant. And in which was food for all. Under which the beasts of the field dwelt. And in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you O king. For you have become great and grown strong and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one descending from heaven, saying, chop down the tree and destroy it. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it. In that the new grass of the field and let him be drenched with dew of heaven and let him share with the, the, the beast of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the most high which has come upon my lord, the king, that you be driven away from mankind, that your dwelling place be with the beast of the field and that you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after, after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. There was a young woman by the name of Wilhelmina She was crowned the king of Holland while she was still a very young girl. And as she looked out at the thousands upon thousands of cheering subjects at her coronation, she was a bit confused as to what it all meant. 
And her mom was standing there with her. And so she, she turned to her mom and said, Mama, do all these people belong to me? And her mother's reply was, no, dear, you belong to them. Nebuchadnezzar here had forgotten this very important lesson. You see, God had raised him up to be the king. He had placed him in this position. He gives him this picture of a tree, this massive tree, he says, that is providing food for all these beasts that are dwelling under it, is providing shade and protection. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you've been raised to this position of prominence. You've been given this authority and kingdom so that you could be the one providing and protecting people under you, which, remember, included the Jews who God had carried away into captivity for this period of time in Babylon until they were ready to be restored to the land. And Nebuchadnezzar had had forgotten of where he was and why he was in this position. So God reminds him uh, what he was to do. And he says, because you have forgotten your appointed an instrument, you need to be cut down to size. This tree would be cut off. And he, he says now... I'm not going to rip the tree up from its roots because I'm going to leave a part of it, the foundation there for when you come back and you repent, then your kingdom will be restored to you. But Daniel tells the king here, if you don't repent of your pride, if you don't recognize who God is, you are going to be removed from the throne and you will live like an animal. You see, Nebuchadnezzar thought he was better than other men. He thought he was better than the God of heaven. And so what God does here is says, I will humble you. I will take you from beauty to beast. And as Nebuchadnezzar grovels on the ground eating the grass, you're going to be lower than the lowest of men. And then you'll be forced to turn and look up and see God. C.S. Lewis once said, a proud man can never see God because he is too busy looking down on everybody and everything. Nebuchadnezzar liked to look down on everybody. And so God said, you can look at the ground for seven long years. And when he finally realized where he was in comparison to God, as he was groveling in the grass, as he looked up and he saw God in heaven, there would be a change in his life. And then God would restore him to his throne. And as Daniel tells the interpretation, he says here in verse 27, there's a way to avoid this judgment. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness, from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. If you read the book of Jonah, you'll remember there was a wicked nation called the Ninevites. And Jonah was sent there to to tell them, you have a judgment that is coming. But the Ninevites repented, and God removed the coming judgment from those wicked people. And here, this is what Nebuchadnezzar is being called to do. He says, if you will repent, if you will do these deeds of righteousness. Now, be sure you understand this isn't teaching a salvation of works. This isn't saying, well, Nebuchadnezzar, if you do enough good things to offset the bad things, then you'll be saved. The Bible is very clear. We are saved by grace, not by works. It tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. And what is being talked about here is that if there are acts of righteousness, it shows there's been a repentance. The word repent literally means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of action, to realize we're going in the wrong direction, to stop, 
turn around and come back to God. And Nebuchadnezzar is being told, if you will repent of your pride, if you will humble yourself and recognize you need God, then you will be saved. And the fruit that is produced from this repentance would show the root of the tree. These would be outward manifestations of this inward change that has to take place in Nebuchadnezzar. You see, what pride does is it puts ourselves above God and all others. But when we put God in his proper place, we recognize that we are not only to serve God, but everyone else. And hearing these words, Nebuchadnezzar has a wake-up call. And I've seen people have wake-up calls numerous times. I'll visit somebody in a hospital. And they're there because of a heart attack or some accident that's just happened. And, and as I talk with them at their, their beds in a hospital, they'll often say to me, Pastor Roger, this is God's wake-up call. I recognize that I need to make some changes. God hasn't been the priority in my life that he needs to be, but things are going to be different. Or I'm going to put my family first because I've been putting work ahead of them or pursuing this or that. And they have this wake-up call. Others will have a financial crisis. And they'll say the same thing. God has got my attention. I recognize he hasn't had the place of priority in my life, in my labors, in my treasures. And I'm going, to be, I'm going to be different. Things are going to be different going forward. And at first, in many cases, people make changes. But then, as the wake-up call becomes more of a distant memory, some let God slip further and further back down the line. And as we read in verses 28 through 30, we see that as the months pass and the memory of the dream fades, Nebuchadnezzar falls back into his old ways because we're told all of this, that is describing the prophesied judgment, it says all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Now, friends, there's nothing wrong with having a rightful pride for a job well done. But this is the kind of pride that says, I did it all myself. As you look at verse 30, he says, Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty? You see, he mistakenly believes he's solely responsible for the greatness and the productivity of Babylon. And as we're reading this, there's a warning for us. There's a warning for us as individuals, and there's a warning for us as a nation. Back in 1863, President Abraham Lincoln declared what he called the National Day of Humiliation, Fasting, and Prayer. And in this declaration, Lincoln said, We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in this deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of God's redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. That was 160 years ago. How much farther 
have we fallen and forgotten God in our modern time? Friends, if you find yourself thinking you're on top of the world and you're, you're the ruler of your own little kingdom, then watch out. Because what Proverbs 16, 18 tells us is pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And as we see in verses 31 through 33, that's precisely what happens. Because it says, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. I thought about a story of two ducks and a turtle when I was reading this. You see, these three were living in a pond that was starting to dry up and as the, the water was getting less and less in the pond, the ducks weren't too worried because they knew they could eventually just fly on to the next place of, of water. But they didn't want to leave their friend, the turtle, behind. And, and as they were trying to figure out how to get him to safety, the turtle said, I've got an idea. He said, let's get a stick, a strong stick. And, and each of the ducks, you can put one end of the branch in your bill. You can each clamp down, and I'll clamp down on the center of it. And then you can take off, and as I'm holding on to the stick, you can fly me to the next place. Now, they weren't sure it would work, but they tried it, and sure enough, after a little struggle, they were able to get airborne, and they were flying along with this turtle. And as this uh, sight, you know, passed over the head of some people, these two ducks holding a stick with a turtle clamped down in the middle, somebody said, wow, that's kind of amazing. I wonder who thought of that. And and the turtle, not being able to give up credit for his idea, opened his mouth and said, I did. And he found the truth that pride goes before the fall. Friends, that's Nebuchadnezzar here. He gazes out of the glory of Babylon. And you'll remember the slides I showed you in the opening sermon. Babylon was this beautiful place. The seven, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there. It was this massive, beautiful city. And he looks out over its grandeur and he says, I did this. This is my city. I built this. And as he opens his mouth in pride, he instantly goes from the penthouse to the outhouse. His mouth, which moments before had been boasting, is now filled with grass as he's groveling on the ground. And for seven years of mowing the grass with his mouth, he finally comes to the point where his pride is broken and he looks up and he says, God did this. God is the one responsible. God is the one in control. God is the one who deserves the glory. Verses 34 through 37 tell us, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will. In the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say, What hast thou done? 
At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me. For the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. You know, as Nebuchadnezzar walked along the the kingdom palace roof, as he looked out, he said, uh, I'm high and mighty. And yet as he's flat on his back on the ground, having been humbled, he finally sees who is truly high and lifted up. The Aramaic word used here for the most high literally means to go up, to climb, to ascend. This name of God pictures the majesty of God being the highest of the highest. He is the one who, he he sees the supremacy and the overwhelming majesty of God. It's been said that a life that's wrapped up in itself makes a very small package. And that had been Nebuchadnezzar. He was so focused on him and his own glory that, that he couldn't see the greater grandeur and glory that was beyond the gates of Babylon. And here he sees God for who he is, the most high, high and lifted up. As he sees this this new view of God and the glory that goes beyond the borders of Babylon, he also understands what God does is often bigger than what we can see. We're told that in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. There it says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. He says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Nebuchadnezzar says here, all of God's ways are just. He says, while I didn't like being knocked down for seven years, groveling on the ground, he says, God had to put me flat on my back before I would finally see who he is. And he praises God for this. He's grateful that God did this. You know, some of us here can tell a similar story. Some of us here had to be driven to our knees before we would acknowledge God for who he is. Some of us can think of times in our life where God had to break us so that we would look up and see who he is. And friends, if you've not yet come to God, If you've been battling God, thinking you can do it your way, that you don't need him in your life, I pray you do it the easier way because that's what pride is. Pride says, I don't need God. I'm in control. I can get to him based upon who I am and what I do. And as Nebuchadnezzar says here, God is able to humble those who walk in pride. If if you think that you can do it on your own, you're wrong, because God says there's only one way home to heaven, and that's through his son. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The only way you will get to heaven is to humble yourself and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I recognize there's nothing in me that makes me acceptable to you. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. From the pastor in this pulpit to the person uh, seated here or seated at home, there's not a single one of us who is good enough to earn our way home to heaven. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That word sin literally means to miss the mark. It means we haven't been perfect 
100% of our life, 100% of the time is what is required. And when it says we have sinned, we have missed the mark. We've fallen short of God's standard of perfection. And because we are sinners, we owe a penalty, a penalty of death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, when God looks at us, he looks at and sees us for who we are. We're sinners, fallen. And God didn't say, you know, you deserve that judgment, I'm done with you. Instead, what Romans 5, 8 says is he demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God left his throne in heaven to come to earth to ultimately go to a cross in order to pay that penalty of death that we owe for our sins. And what God says is, in order to be saved, we have to humble ourselves. We have to acknowledge that we can't get to God on our own. And when we say to God, I'm a sinner, I know I'm deserving of the penalty of death, we then turn to and accept the gift that God has for us. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And so the question this morning is, have you ever come to that point of faith? Have you ever humbled yourself and said, God, I realize I need you. Jesus, you are the one who died for me and I accept your gift of grace today. If you've not done that, but you're ready to do so now, I'm going to close our time today with a prayer. You don't have to walk the aisle at home. You don't have to pray this prayer out loud. You can just pray this in the privacy of your heart and mind. It's your way to say to God, I'm confessing with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. And Romans 10, 9 says you'll be saved if you do that. So if you'd like to acknowledge today your need for Jesus Christ to be your savior, to accept his gift of grace as he died on the cross to pay the penalty of death that you and I owed, then I invite you to bow your head and pray this prayer with me. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I've tried to live my life in a good way, but there have been times I've failed. And because of that, I recognize I owe the penalty of death. I realize I can't earn my way to heaven by being good. It's only by your grace. And I thank you that you loved me enough to die for me, Jesus. That you came and you went to the cross to take my place shedding your blood to wash away my sins, paying that penalty of death that I owed. I believe that you rose from the dead three days later, showing you were indeed who you said you were, the God-man who conquered sin and death. I thank you that you have paid for the penalty of death for me and that you have accepted me into your family as I accept you now, Jesus, as my personal Savior. Thank you for the gift of eternal life that you've given to me. Thank you for making me a part of your family. I pray these things in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, if you prayed that prayer, I'd love to talk to you after the service. If you're at home worshiping with us, please email us here at Wayside Chapel, and we'd love to get some information to you to help you to begin to walk in your new relationship with God, to take the next steps to grow in your faith with him. For the rest of us who know the Lord and love him, God calls on us to go into the world and share the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Thank you for being here to worship with us. As we gather again next week, we're going to be celebrating communion. Uh, We will have individually packaged uh, juice and wafers here. 
at 410 campus. If you're at home, we ask you to prepare some elements so that you can take communion as a family or where you are at home. Again, thank you for being here to worship with us and worshiping online. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You're dismissed.